Good evening, everybody. How are you? Good. About 15 people are good. Praise God. That's great to know. Um, I uh, had a great time with our Colorado family this weekend in Woodland Park. And it's just awesome to see Victory Life Church in different cities. And wherever you go where there's a Victory Life, you feel like you're at home. And that's cool. And I got to meet some awesome people there and uh, wanted to just take what I ministered on there in Colorado and, and speak on that same thing tonight with you guys. And, you know, for this month of July, uh, we've been in a rotation of speakers on the weekend. How many of you enjoyed Pastor Jim this past Sunday? Didn't he do a great job? That's awesome. I'm, I am really looking forward to this coming Sunday. We're going to have uh, Pastor Liza West, where I was in Colorado. She will be here Sunday uh, in Durant ministering to you guys. And I know it's going to be great. And uh, I pray that you come and that you invite somebody. And I know it's going to be a great time uh, learning from her. She's just an awesome woman of faith and uh, was very honored to be at her campus this past weekend. So James Brown, I know it's been a little while ago, but James Brown at the beginning of this month kicked us off in a sermon series. And the first part of that sermon series was about breaking the huddle and running the play. How many of you remember that? All right. So now this month of July, we've kind of had this running theme in regards to winning at the game of life. And that's kind of where we've been pulling inspiration for each one of our Sunday services with the different ministers that are coming and sharing the word at the different campuses. And I want to share with you tonight just three things that I feel like the Lord put on my heart in regards to how we win at the game of life based upon our definitions as Christians. How many of you know that there's a way to succeed by the world standards? And there's a way to succeed by kingdom standards. And even though all truth is parallel, and we can compare and we can contrast and we can extrapolate some common things in both of those camps, at the end of the day, success by the world standards and success by kingdom standards is radically different. Can I get a witness on that at least? In the world standards of success, we're talking mostly about monetary gain, material gain, and being able to create a comfortable life for you and for your family. I talked a little bit about this last week, and uh, I'll use uh, what I said here. Uh, if you remember, you can still laugh if you think it's funny. But by the world standards, we get this, uh, we get this uh, kind of funny phrase in regards to succeeding called running the rat race. How many of you have heard of that term before? Okay, That's like climbing the proverbial ladder of success and what that looks like to succeed and get the right job or get the certain amount of pay and all those different kinds of things and keep up with the Joneses, make sure that our yard looks better than the neighbor's yard and make sure that our car is newer than the neighbor's car and make sure that we finally get to live in that area or place in town that has the house with the right square footage and all those different kinds of things. And what I have found is, is that even if you succeed at running the rat race, you're still a rat because it's a rat race. And we're not called to be rats. We're called to be children of God, living this life now empowered by the Holy Spirit. And there's this way to succeed by kingdom standards. And it's not something that the world gets to define for us. It's something that Jesus gets to define for us. And there's three things that I feel that the Lord impressed in my heart in regards to helping people understand how to win at this game of life, if you will, by Christian definition. And I want to share those things with you, and I pray that they will be a blessing to you. So if you're taking notes, this is number one. The number one thing that I think as Christians we have to understand 
if we're going to win at the game of life is that we have to understand that life really isn't a game, it's a gift. Life is a gift. And it's important for you to realize that and understand that. Because there's something about viewing your life as a gift that changes the way that you process the reality that you're currently experiencing. Something about viewing your life as a gift puts you into the correct mental space, I believe, to begin to interact with God in the purity of heart that he's calling us to. You know, a gift by nature is something that you did not purchase for yourself. I understand that we buy ourselves things and we can classify that as a gift, but a gift, by definition, is something that somebody else gets for you and gives to you. And if you're even halfway a good person, <laughs> last time I hope that you received a gift, you said thank you. How many of you said thank you the last time that you received a gift? There's this beautiful thing that happens in our lives and what it means to win at the game of life as a Christian whenever we make a decision to live a life posturing ourselves in a place of gratitude. It's huge. I think gratitude in the church today is one of the most overlooked and underutilized things that we have in regards to how to enhance our relationship with Jesus. I know that the Psalms paint a picture for us, and it's a beautiful one, that we enter his gates with and his courts with. If they're his gates and his courts, that means that he's on the other side of them. And I believe fully that one of the fastest ways for us to begin to interact with the presence of God is to get grateful. So many people are losing at the game of life. They're benched, if you will, in this game of life because they have developed an attitude rooted in comparison and control. And because they're addicted to control and there's so many parts of their lives that are out of whack and they didn't get to choose, their lack of control forces them into adopting a victim mentality. And it's important for us to know and realize that as a Christian, you will constantly live in a divided place internally. You will literally be a house divided on the inside if as a born-again believer, you identify deep down as a victim. And the reason for that is, is that once you make a decision to follow Jesus, you are born again and you have a new nature. And the new nature that you have is not you made in the image of the victim, it's you made in the image of the Creator. And if you allow your mental processes to constantly drive you back into a place of victimization, you are going to be tormented and twisted on the inside. And it's important for us to recognize that in our own lives, recognize that in the people that God's calling us to reach out toward, and to encourage brothers and sisters in the Lord that if you've made a decision to follow Jesus, all things are now possible for those that believe. The things that look like mountains and the things that you're facing in your life, the impossible situations pale in comparison to the God of the impossible who's taken up residency on the inside of you. And it's important for us to know and to realize as believers that we need to stay away from this addiction to control that we have and this addiction to comparison. Control and comparison in our lives being addicted to these two things will result in us falling out of the game of life prematurely. Needing to control every aspect of our life and driving ourselves in this insane perfectionism ultimately allows us to do one thing, get exhausted and burn out. We're not called, church, to live this life of being able to control every aspect of our life or have the answer to every question. 
I know more people that fall out of the game of life that we're called to be, the, the game of life that we're called to be engaged in for this one question. And the question is, why? Why did that happen? Why was I born into this family? Why did I get the parents that I have? Why did I end up getting this job? Why did I allow myself to make those choices? And because we're addicted to control, and on the other side of that why question is usually something that we're ashamed of, something that we're condemned about, or something that we wish we could change but we have no power to, our inability to be in control forces us deep down to relate more to a victim identity than to our nature now, which is patterned after the creator of the universe. How many of you know that God, the Father Almighty, is the farthest thing from a victim that you'll ever meet in all of your life? Because he is the creator. He's the God that turns something out of nothing, and that's how everything started. And that's what he delights in doing. You might have things and places in your life that seem like they're just a big nothing. But the good news is that even if you feel like a zero, as long as you have the one that's Jesus next to you, you're at least a ten. That's good news, all right? Just make sure you put the one in front of the zero, not after it, because then you're still a zero. But right here, one. We have to make sure that we stay connected to the truth of who we are in Christ. Because by doing so, we allow ourselves to move into a place of trusting God. And the areas of our life that we ask why, the areas of our life that are complicated, the areas of our life that are mysterious, don't have the ability now to drive us into a place of depression into a place of victimization and feeling like maybe my life is just meaningless. One of the things that I connect with people on time and time again is people that are walking through this sense of purpose and and, and having a, a void in their sense of purpose on the inside of them. Feeling like really maybe deep down they are insignificant or maybe really deep down their life isn't going to measure up to anything or not make the impact that they want it to make. Or really this, this thing that they're doing, this time and space that they're existing in, the universe might just be, as Solomon said, in the middle of his identity and existential crisis, vanity. All is vanity. All right? Let me just pause and make a side note here because I'm back home and I can do this. You need to know that not all of the Bible, all right, not every part of the Bible is something that you're supposed to base your life on. Okay, I was expecting that response. You say, but pastor, every part of that Bible is supposed to be impacting my life, and I'm supposed to apply it to my life. I understand that, but every part of that Bible is not supposed to be something that you're supposed to replicate in your life. Are you following me? How many of you want to replicate Samson's life in your life? I'm okay passing that. I'd rather learn from Samson's mistake and my life be better. Is everybody okay? Okay. How many, are you following me? I'll just use one example. Hopefully you catch on by now. Solomon was not releasing all this wisdom in the book of Ecclesiastes. He was having an identity crisis. He was having a midlife crisis. Are you following me? He, 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 was, he was looking at things from a perspective that were no longer, and parts of the book he probably was, parts of the book he wasn't. But what I love about the Bible is that it doesn't apologize for humanity. Even David in the Psalms, if you ever read the Psalms, what you'll find is, is that there's a lot of things in David's life that he's asking why about. 
God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you abandoned me? Why is this crazy guy Saul trying to kill me? Don't you care anymore? He's being very honest and vulnerable with God. But the beautiful thing about it is, is that he's still connecting to God. And the majority of the Psalms, when you read them, if they start out that way with David asking legitimate why questions and having the temptation to take on that identity of a victim, because he's actually still making a choice to connect with God, even in the midst of his pain, every single one of those Psalms about midway turns around into something like this. But yet again, I will praise you because of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. I think that one of the things we have to do in recognizing that our life is a gift is we have to make a decision that no matter how we're feeling in this life, that we are intentionally connecting every single day with our source of help in every kind of trouble. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. No matter what's going on in our life and all the wide questions that we have, part of gratitude is still being able to say thank you to God for the fact that you are breathing. Anybody thankful that they're breathing right now? Okay, I like to be able to breathe. I like to be able to be alive. And here's the truth of it, guys. Even on your worst day, and even in the worst circumstance that you face, I guarantee you, there's that not just one, there's at least 10 more people that are experiencing something way worse than you. There's always something to be thankful for. We don't give thanks to God for all things, but we do give thanks to God in all things. And this is an important thing to connect and realize that if we're going to win at the game of life, we have to start saying thank you to God more. And the reason is, uh, and I'll break it down for you on a couple different levels, but this is what I want to tell you, that being thankful doesn't mean that you have to compromise being honest. I just told you you don't thank God for all things, but you can't thank God in all things. David wasn't thanking God for the fact that he was being run down and trying to be killed by Saul. But he did make a decision to thank God for the things he could thank God for, even in the midst of those situations in the Psalms. Just being really honest and really transparent with you, there are many conversations with God called prayer that start out for me like this. God, I don't really want to talk to you right now. I'm upset. I'm anxious. I'm mad about this. I don't get this situation. How many of you know that even when you choose to connect with God in the honesty of, I don't really want to talk to you right now, you're still talking to God? Which means that as long as I will keep the conversation open and make a choice to practice this sense of gratitude, which starts off maybe in this really gut-level raw honesty of, I don't like this stuff in my life right now. I'm not sure what's going on. As long as I will direct my attention and focus to God, the thing about God is, is that you can't start thinking about Him, connecting with Him, and something not change. It's why you don't pray whenever you're angry. Because you know if you pray when you're angry, something will change. You want to stay angry for a little while. It's why whenever you get upset with your spouse, you don't go off in the closet and start speaking blessings over them and asking the Lord to give you prophetic messages about your spouse and remind you of all their good qualities when they wrong you. And when they're wrong, you want to revel a little bit in how right you are and in your indignation and you want to experience what that is for that moment. And you know that if you pray, if you connect with God, your heart will soften. Things will change. Can I be honest with you? Okay, very good. I was hoping that you'd give me permission. I'll never do it without your permission, all right? We are living in the most depressed time in regards to the state of mental health 
in this country than we ever have by mental health statistics. And the thing about it is, is that we've had, we have access to the most stuff that we've ever had. Technology, finances, medications, all these different kinds of things. I want to encourage you with something today. That there's something that helps alleviate this depression that tries to come on us. And I can just tell you this. Life is hard. And there's situations that we face that we don't understand. And we have to be able to get out of our Christianese circles and bubbles and start looking down on or putting stigmas on things like depression. I know more people that would soon enough in the, in the Christian world admit to pornography before they would depression. And I'm like, why? Like, what's the stigma with that? I got to tell you this. If you're alive and you're living in the same world that I am, in the same day and age that I am, every day you have an opportunity to be depressed. I'm just being real with you. This is one of these things that's natural for us to combat and natural for us to begin to feel oftentimes. But there's this beautiful thing that happens whenever we understand that at the root cause of our depression most of the time is an inability to realize that we are focusing on ourselves and not focusing on God. Oftentimes if we strip it away and we look at the root cause of what's going on in regards to this depression that tries to come on us and is plaguing so many people in this hour is that a lot of times that is coming from a place of deep-seated fear or anxiety. How many of you have experienced some anxiety today? Okay, my hand is up as well. Okay, I live with five small people. I'm married. We're in the middle of selling our house. There's all kinds of things to be stressed about. There's all kinds of things to be anxious about, all right? Fear. And anxiety work together to produce this depressed state. Depressed means to be lower, to be pushed down, to operate at a level of life that God does not want us to operate at. And the beautiful thing about gratitude, and the reason why I put it number one on this list of only three things that I believe as a Christian, if you put these things into your life, you will start to succeed at life. You will win at the game of life. The reason I put gratitude at the top of the list is because of this. God knows what he's talking about whenever he tells us in, our, in his word to be anxious for nothing, but in all things, through prayer, with thanksgiving, make our requests known to God. There's a reason why Paul tells us to set our mind on things that are pure, lovely, excellent. If there be anything praiseworthy, set your mind on these things. There's a reason why Paul's in jail and he says, I think myself happy. There's a reason why we're supposed to be praising God at all times in our spirit. We're supposed to make melody to the Lord. It's because of this. Physiologically, it's been proven that your brain cannot process gratitude and fear at the same time. There are literally parts of your brain that turn off whenever you get into a grateful place of being. Uh, CEOs and executives of large organizations are investing large sums of money to get this truth into their employees. And this truth is called the grateful brain, teaching people how to operate at a new brain space and literally at different brain waves whenever you shift into a place of gratefulness. The Bible isn't just a good suggestion. The Bible is truth. And whenever we, make an, whenever we make this mental ascent to understand that what God's speaking to us through his word actually has the ability to have impact on our lives and we make a decision to do things with a discipline focused like being in a place of gratitude day in and day out, it has the ability to change a lot of things in regards to how we experience life, how we interact with the people around us. 
I did an exercise when I was with our family in Colorado, and I'll do it with you guys. I've probably done it before, but as Pastor Lee says, if you're hearing this again, that's a reason you didn't get it the first time, all right? So I want to encourage you with something. Let me demonstrate for you some of the shifts on the inside of you as a person, and I want you to pay attention to how you begin to feel as we participate in this gratefulness exercise. I want you to begin to take inventory of what's changing on the inside. And I want you to also take inventory of what's changing in the room and the way that you're perceiving the people around you, the way that you're perceiving me, and the way that you're perceiving God. I'll show you why I would encourage you, if you want to win at the game of life, to adopt a discipline of gratitude every day. I'm going to prove it to you because it's able to be proven. All right? Everybody just bow your head and close your eyes. Whatever posture of prayer looks like for you, but since I told you to bow your head and close your eyes, do what I told you to do. All right, so bow your head and close your eyes. This is what I want you to do. Right now, in this place, from your heart, I just want you to begin to tell God the things that you're thankful for in your life. I'm gonna model it for you out, out loud. Father, thank you for my family. Thank you for the blessing of the children that you've given to me, of the wife that you've given to me. Thank you, God, for giving me a partner in my spouse that's devoted to cultivate the presence of God in our home. Thank you, God, for teaching me and showing me how to see Jesus's face in the faces of my children. Thank you, Jesus, for making this life possible that I'm living. Thank you for selflessly coming to die the death that you died on the cross so that I could live. I thank you for this breath, God, that I'm breathing. I thank you, Lord, that all things are possible now for those that believe because, Jesus, you have conquered hell, death, sin. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for invading our hearts. Thank you for connecting us to the Father. Thank you for constantly, Holy Spirit, bringing us into a place of joy and peace as we cooperate with you. Thank you, Lord, for the blessing of the freedom that we enjoy in this land. Thank you for a building to come together and to worship you in. Thank you for a place, a church that's devoted to speaking the truth of Christ. Thank you for your love. Everybody open your eyes. What's changed on the inside of you? What's changed in the room? Voice of fear, voice of anxiety, voice of depression, voice of complexity is silenced whenever we get into a place of gratefulness. Gratefulness opens up our mind to begin to interact with God in the way that we were designed to interact with him. If we want to win at the game of life, I believe that we've got to start telling God thank you more often. Amen? That's number one. You ready for number two? One person. Praise God. Where are you at, brother? I want to preach to you wherever you are. Josh, okay, this is for you, bud. Everybody, oh, behind you. Stephen, was it you? Praise God. Everybody cover your ears but Stephen. This is just for him since nobody else wanted it but him. Here you go. Stephen, second thing that you need if you're going to win at the game of life, brother, is this. you got to understand that if you want to live your best life, all right, hashtag your best life, then you've got to devote your life to making the lives of others better. 
the only way for you to come into a place of living your best life And people come to me all the time. Pastor Zach, I want to live a better life. Pastor Zach, I want this thing in my life to get better. I want this to be better. I want that to be better. And my response is always the same. Whose life are you making better? Because the only way for you to be better is to start focusing on making other people's lives better. That's the way that this thing works. The same way that gratitude gets the attention off of us and onto God. And it's impossible to tell somebody thank you without them becoming the center point of what you're thinking about. It's impossible for me to say thank you to Pam without me thinking about Pam. I stop thinking about me and I start thinking about Pam whenever I say thank you. That's what we're doing when we're practicing gratitude with God. But in that place of gratitude with God, what happens is I come into a space now of being able to discern what's on the heart of God. And I can tell you, if you've ever really wondered what's on the heart of God, it's people. God loves people. He loves them so much that he gave his son to spill blood on a cross to be able to redeem them all and give them all a shot, an opportunity to live with him in a state of union, to live with him as a state of eternal life. God's heart is for people. And if you want to begin to see yourself winning at this life that God's called you to, at this new creation kind of life that's been birthed on the inside of you by following Jesus and being in connection with the Holy Spirit, then I challenge you daily to make a decision to make the lives of other people better. And I believe that as Christians, we have an unfair advantage when it comes to this because we are literally carrying around the presence of God everywhere that we go. I don't know if you know this or not, so I'm gonna break it down for you very simply, really basic theology. Whenever things get better, it's God. When things are bad, it's not God. God is good, And the devil is bad. So when things are getting better, it's... If it's not getting better, it's not God. I believe that us, Christians, carrying around the presence of God, that it should be our mission that everywhere we go, we are invested in making things better. And I believe that because there's a scriptural pattern for this. In 2 Samuel... If you uh, write this down in your notes, you can go back and look at it later. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, there's an Old Testament kind of illustration of this with a guy named Obed-Edom. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of a guy named Obed-Edom. All right, cool. It's kind of an obscure passage. I'm not going to delve too much into it, but I'm going to break it down for you very simplistically this way. Obed-Edom is this guy... This dude that was a friend of David's, King David's, and the Philistines, who this opposing army, this opposing army that was against Israel, the people of God, had stolen the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant represents a lot of things. There's Old Testament types and shadows that show us that it's pointing us to Jesus and that this uh, presence of God, this container, this carrying thing for the presence of God had been manifested in Christ. But for today's illustrations and purposes, I just wanted you to think about the Ark of the Covenant as the presence of God. There's a lot of things that we could do uh, Bible study-wise, theologically, scholarly, to break down all the different things that it represents. But I want you to know this, that an Old Testament standard where the Ark of the Covenant was, the presence of God was. And you had to relate to it a very specific way. There was rules in regards to being under that covenant, under that law, and how to relate to the Ark of the Covenant. Well, the Philistines steal it, and David and his guys go and they get it back. And when they get it back, they are carrying it, and there's this guy named Uzzah, and Uzzah, he doesn't relate to the presence of God, the Ark, correctly, and he touches it in a way that he's not supposed to, and he dies. He drops dead on the spot. Remember I told you at the beginning of this talk that there's things that happen in our life that make us scratch our head and ask why? This was kind of one of those things for David. Uzzah was David's friend, 
And Uzzah now drops dead on the spot. And the scripture is very clear. It says this, that David got angry with God. I want to be honest with you. That if you've ever been angry with God, or you are right now, it's okay. God is a big boy. He's not afraid of you whenever you're angry. Anger might work with you manipulating and pushing other relationships around, but it doesn't with God. All right? He's not intimidated of you. And he knows that you'll eventually come to your senses and you'll reconnect and remember how good he is. David has this thing that happens in his life, this why, this thing that makes him get upset with God. And because he gets upset with God, he's even thinking to himself, I don't know if I want to carry around the Ark of the Covenant. So he drops it off at Obed-Edom's house because it's kind of on the way to where they're going. And Obed-Edom takes the Ark and this crazy thing happens at Obed-Edom's house. The scripture says this, that because the Ark was at Obed-Edom's house, that God prospered the house of Obed-Edom. I can tell you just really basically what that means. It means that things got better at Obed-Edom's house. Things got really good, like Obed-Edom's kids started listening to him. And not only that, like his, his wife started listening to him. Even, it was like revival was breaking out at Obed-Edom's house. All right? And, and he actually became nice in, in, in his husbandry. Ladies, that was for you, okay? He lives and stuff, okay? That's fine. I won't give you anything else again, okay? Don't say I never gave you anything. But here's the thing. Things started prospering. Things started getting better at his house. There was abundance. Things started improving, Can I be honest with you that in this New Testament example that we have in Christ, who is the fulfillment of all those things that the Ark of the Covenant, the tabernacle, all that was, has all been fulfilled in Jesus. If you look at the life of Jesus in the Gospels, everywhere that Jesus went, things got better. Jesus was at a wedding one time and it was super lame. So he turned the water into wine. Things got better at the wedding. Are you following me? There's a lot of deeply spiritual things associated with that. I got a lot better response on that joke in Colorado. Go figure. But here's the thing that I want to be able to tell you is that things get better when Jesus is around. Jesus takes a little boy's lunch. He touches it. He feeds a multitude. Jesus is around dead people. They don't stay dead. Jesus is around lepers. They don't stay as lepers. Are you following me? Jesus is around women in that day and age. For a rabbi to teach a woman, and especially for a woman to be a part of a rabbi's yoke, to follow them was taboo, socially unacceptable. Jesus says not only can they do that, but they can be part of his disciples. We see Mary Magdalene, somebody that Jesus cleansed of seven demons, following Jesus around, was one of the only ones that was at the cross whenever Jesus died. There's only one of the men, John, and he wrote the book of John and said that he was there, so go figure. He says he was there. But all the men except for John were hiding. And two women, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Mary Magdalene, are at the cross. Where Jesus is around, he corrects even social wrongs. Where Jesus is around, things get better. Same way that the Ark of the Covenant, presence of God, made things better at Obed-Edom's house. Can I be honest with you, church? Jesus is right here. Jesus is on the inside of you. If things got better everywhere that Jesus went, things should get better everywhere that you go. And there's this supernatural thing about following Jesus. To win at the game of life by Christian standards, one, we got to get more grateful. we got to say more thank yous to God. Two, we have to start focusing on making the lives of other people better. But it only happens whenever we realize how much Christ has made better in us. Do you realize that you are infinitely better Because Jesus, by his spirit, has chosen to take up residence in you. 
Does anybody else but me understand what kind of a massive upgrade that is for a human to have Jesus come on the inside of them and indwell them by his Holy Spirit? That's a dramatic upgrade. That's a lot better than a fresh coat of paint. Are you following me? That means that if I'm going to win at the game of life and what it means to win at the game of life by Jesus' standards, everywhere I go, things need to get better. And it's a supernatural thing. It's a supernatural life to follow the Lord Jesus. And all that means is that it's a mingling of heaven and earth. How many of you know that you're natural? This body, this present time and space. But there's this super that's come to dwell on the inside of you in Jesus. And now you're not just natural, you're supernatural. And living a supernatural life looks like making the lives of other people better. And that can look like a lot of different things. That can look like you having an encouraging word or even a prophetic word for the waiter or the waitress at the restaurant that you're at. And to be able to speak something at a space and time from heaven to earth to make that person's life better. That could be what it means. But let me tell you what also it looks like to make things and people better. Supernatural life, we immediately think about things like that. To prophesy over the waitress or to step out and see that person that's hurting at Walmart and agree with them for healing right in the middle of the aisle and God heal them. How many of you know that's awesome? I pray that that happens in your life. It's happened in mine. I pray it happens in yours. That's great. But let me tell you something. It's as equally supernatural at the same restaurant that you prophesied over the waiter to go to the bathroom and see that there's a bunch of paper towels on the floor and to grab a new paper towel And to use that new paper towel to pick up all the paper towels off the ground, put it in the trash can, and then with that same new paper towel, wipe the counter down where there's water. You know, it's as equally supernatural for you to pray over somebody in the sanctuary as it is for you to be in the coffee shop and see a little bit of coffee on the ground and choose to get a little bit of napkins and just clean it up. Because it's supernatural to care. Caring is supernatural. And if you limit yourself to only doing the spectacular, powerful things of God everywhere that you go, I think that Jesus might have a question for you whenever you see him face to face. Why is it, friend, that you only want to be caught doing the things that are noticeable instead of the things that are hidden? Because I would say that true supernatural living is to care about the things that nobody else cares about. That's a pretty good response for a charismatic church. Awesome. Praise God. Third thing. Five minutes. Praise God. It's going to be good. It's about to be supernatural. I'm going to end on time. You just hold your breath and watch. We will wake you up when you pass out. Number three. Here's the thing that I want to encourage you with. If we're going to win at this game of life. Tate prophesied some of this musically. I don't tell anybody what I'm going to share because I can't be honest with you. Half the time, I don't know what I'm going to share. So I don't tell anybody ahead of time. Nobody knew what I was going to talk about, right? Nobody was, that was here on the ministry team, on the worship team, was with me in Colorado. Third thing is if, if you're going to win at the game of life, then you have to come into a place of understanding that your soul needs more things that are simple and real and less things that are artificial and complicated. Your soul is craving things that are simple and real. And it is wanting to reject things in this day and and time that are artificial and complicated. There's this complexity to life. And there's this busyness in life that oftentimes gets thrust upon us. Several months ago, I was praying 
And as I was praying, I began to have this vision. Anybody ever have visions while they pray besides me? Cool. And I don't mean like an open vision with my eyes open. Sometimes I pray and I just start seeing like a little movie playing in my mind. People say, well, that's your imagination. I know. Who do you think gave you an imagination? God. Yeah, the reason you have an imagination is so that God can actually use it to project his imagery into your mind. It doesn't mean that you originated it or that you just dreamed it up. It's God actually harnessing your brain for the thing that it was supposed to do, which is to commune with him and receive heavenly input and all those different kinds of things. So I started seeing this picture, and this picture was, and I knew it had to be you know, this prophetic vision because I was doing a lot of physical activity in the vision, and that doesn't happen in real life. And specifically, I was playing racquetball, which is like the craziest thing to ever do. But I know why the Lord chose to meet me there is because when you play racquetball, you're in an air-conditioned room. So that was great. So I was in the racquetball room, and I was there with the Father. You know, whatever that looks like to you, he comes to me in different ways. And we are there, and he said, son, we're going to play racquetball. So I said, okay. We start playing racquetball. And what I noticed was is that there's one ball that we're hitting back and forth. But as I watched God hit the ball, he didn't move around as much as I did. I was running back and forth across the court. Another way I know I was in the spirit. I'm in great shape in the spirit. I was running back and forth across the court. And I was wearing myself out and hitting the ball. And it seemed like he was just in this circle. And that he only had to take a few steps either direction. He was not working near as hard as me. And I was running all back and forth the court trying to hit the ball. And then out of nowhere, there's a second ball in there with us. So I start trying to hit that ball too. Then there's a third ball in there. And then a fourth ball. So I'm trying to hit four balls, run back and forth in the court. And then we sit down and we start having this conversation. And I say, man, I'm tired. And he said, I know. And I said, well, how do you know that I know? He said, well, I'd be wore out too if I was trying to hit all those balls. And I said, what do you mean, God? And he spoke to me very clearly. And there's a lot of different layers and dimensions of what I feel the Lord downloaded into my heart and this particular time in prayer that I had with him. But this was the thing that I want to communicate to you tonight. He said, Zach, I only put one ball in that court. And he started to talk to me about all these different things. About how all of us, because we gravitate toward control, because we gravitate, gravitate toward complexity, because we gravitate toward the rat race, because we gravitate toward societal expectation, because we gravitate toward our own weird, twisted, perfection, performance mentality, we have no problem, a lot of us, hitting multiple balls. But the issue is, is that not all of those things have eternal value. And not all of those things has God placed in the court of our life. If we're gonna win at the game of life, we have to slow down, become serious and honest about the parts of our life that are unnecessarily complicated, the parts of our life that are driving our souls to a place of exhaustion and be willing to let that go so that we can actually learn how to receive and enjoy the gift of life that God has given us. That's an important thing for us to know and understand and to realize. It's important for us, church, to beware of the counterfeits in this age that the world tries to project on you, these balls that you think that you're supposed to hit. These counterfeits, we have to be aware of them, And we have to make sure that we, as the people of God, stay connected to the original, who is Jesus Christ. And as it was prophesied at the beginning of the service, this one thing do we seek, as David, this one thing do I seek, to inquire in the Lord in his temple, to seek God's face, to stay connected with the only thing that matters, and let life work itself out from there. Are you following me? It's important for us to be aware of the counterfeits, to stay connected to the original, and to help others now get connected to that original who is Jesus Christ, his fulfillment, his hope, 
in our lives. I've had this prophetic uh, message, if you will, uh, this thing that's on the inside of me that I've communicated to you before, and I'm going to keep saying it until God stops wearing me out about it. But I feel that one of the best things that we can do in this hour as the people of God is make sure that we start filling our lives with things that are simple and real and stay away from the artificial and the complicated. And I feel like I don't understand totally what all that's about, but I'm going to tell you something that I said while I was in Woodland Park and I stepped way out on a limb. Uh, Pastor Dwayne and Sue and Jacob and Hannah were there and I was so blessed that they got to be a part of the service. And the only reason that I feel released to tell you this tonight is because I said this publicly in front of Pastor and he validated it. So I know that this is not just me being crazy, which if you know me at all, I do have a propensity sometimes to just get weird. So here's the thing that I want to tell you is that I sense that it's important for us as the church in this day and age to gravitate toward the things that are simple and real Because we're living in a culture that is just completely bent towards artificial and complexity. While I was in Colorado, I was reading an article. And the article was about a CEO of a particular company. And this company is very well known for the production of electric cars. They're state-of-the-art electric cars. They've got a new model now that will literally drive itself. They're very, very intelligent vehicles. And the CEO of this particular company has invested a lot of money, especially gravitating and and toward and wanting to develop artificial intelligence. And one of the things that has just been released as of about three or four days ago now in uh, in this presentation is that by the middle of 2020, which is next year, this particular company, working with a company called Neuralink, is actually going to start human trials by middle of next year, 2020, for the first ever... A platform to integrate a human being and technology and what's referred to as a symbiote. Hair-like fibers are taken and are strategically put into certain key neurological places in your brain to learn the way that your brain fires for the purpose of storing information, but also for the purpose of downloading information. The world that we're living in is such that I believe that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is being teed up for this hour to be what could be one of the very few places on the planet where people still know what it means to be human. What it means to be made in the image of God. There's this deep hole on the inside of society. There's a deep hole on the inside of people because of the depression that we're living in, because of the inability to be Uh, grateful because of this desire in our souls to constantly have more and do more and be more. This thing that's being uh, put into human trials next year has the ability and will eventually have the ability to uh, have a device that you can actually hook up to, to just download whatever you want to know. You want to know a language? You download a language. You want to know about a particular type of religion? You download it. You want to know what it means to have a successful relationship? You download it. Can I be honest with you? Humanity has not gotten creative in its de-evolution from the garden. The same way that Adam and Eve at one point in time reached out and tried to eat of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil for themselves and seize autonomy and define morals and ethics and what it means to be human apart from God because of the temptation of the enemy. That same temptation is on humanity today. And what I can guarantee you is the church of Jesus Christ to wake up and realize what it means 
to not be caught up in a culture that's bent on the artificial and the complicated and out of control consumption, but learn how to come into a place of contentment, peace, and realization that we have something much better than artificial intelligence. We have Christ on the inside of us who is the wisdom of God. We have the very mind of Christ on the inside of us to learn how to begin to operate at a level of intelligence that I feel is spirit-led. What it means. And here's the thing about it. In the culture in the day and age, all this is being talked about from the standpoint of benevolent artificial intelligence. That the reason we're doing this is because we want to make the lives of people better. We want to optimize the human being. So if you've suffered a particular condition of memory loss, we can implant this thing in your brain and we can give you back some core memories. If there's something physically going on in your body, even, uh, uh, even a motor skill that you've lost, we can teach you through this device how to regain that motor skill. Can I be honest with you? <laughs> that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was bearing fruit that looked good for food. It was a delight to the eyes. It was something that was to be desired. Humanity is rapidly approaching a place in which the ultimate form of Satanism, I feel, could be released, and that is a time and place where we decide that we can make humanity in our own image and in our own likeness. And I can tell you that the church of Jesus Christ is going to have to be serious about what it means to walk after the spirit and not the flesh. What it means to be connected to the life source of who, who is the originator of life, who is the creator of the universe in this person of Jesus Christ. And we have to make sure that we are learning how to access the mind of Christ because can I be honest with you, that whatever's going on up here in our mind, there is something much deeper at work that's connecting us to the knowledge base of heaven and that's the Holy Spirit of the living God. You might through a human intervention be able to program somebody's brain to do a particular thing. But this is what I know, is that the church of Jesus Christ has got to learn how to rise up in power, how to rise up in truth. And whenever you can put a device in somebody's brain to make them do such and such, but I can lay hands on you by the Spirit of God and see the same result take place in your body. Are you following me? Whenever we try to do things and we try to create these towers of Babel in our society... To think that we can know more than God, that we can be more benevolent than God, that we can be more kind than God, that we can be more knowledgeable. We are not winning at the game of life. We are totally discrediting and disparaging and tearing to shreds what Jesus' definition of life is, which is eternal life, which is knowing God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. It's important for us in this hour, in the world that we're living in, to have less screens and more sunsets. It's important for us in this hour to be face to face with the people that we love and to teach them what it means to live for holiness, what it means to trust God, what it means to depend on the Lord for our daily bread, our daily provision, what it means to train our children and how to access the voice of the Holy Spirit so strangers they won't follow. It's important for us in this hour to not be afraid of the things that we see in the culture, but to look at it and embrace Jesus and say, what an opportunity to reveal to the world what it really is that fills that void. That powerful people and poor people alike, rich and poor, powerful and lowly, are all seeking 
which is to become into a state of union with the one who is Christ. Through technology, they begin to prophesy in their halls of corporate office and of high-level academia that we can optimize the human being by making them one with technology. And I say that the church of Jesus Christ says the only way to be truly human is to come into a place of union with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's important. It's important. And it's timely, whether we know it or not. Ministry team, if you want to come. Father, I thank you for your grace in our lives. I thank you, Lord, that we're not living in a time (laughs) that we need to draw back. We're not living in a time, Father, in history where you have set us up to fail. But, Father, you have set us up, I fully believe, for a time in history when a world that's bent on digitizing and making everything artificial can come into a place of experiencing the real love of the Father that loves them. I believe, Lord, that to win at this game of life that you've called us to means that we have to know how to pursue this one thing, which is you. To win at this game of life, what it means is for us to slow down and stop trying to hit all these balls that life, the world, the culture is trying to propagate on us. That we have to slow down and pay attention to what it means to truly be in union with you, fully awake and fully alive. Help us to be bold in this hour, to proclaim your gospel, not just with our words, but with our lives. Help us prepare for a time where things seem to be coming more and more artificial and help us to be the real deal in this hour. Help us to be people that help get others connected to what their souls are craving, which is the God of heaven. Help us, Lord, to be bold in what it means to see your signs and wonders move in the earth today. What it means to serve a God who's Jehovah Rapha, God who heals us. Father, what it means to eat of the tree of life, not of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We reject the way of the world, God. We reject the way of trying to optimize ourselves. And we choose to know that in Christ, You have revealed to us all things pertaining to life and godliness. Grow us in grace, I pray, Father, to be surrendered vessels of your power, to see a culture, Father, bent on trying to boast in their own abilities, be people that boast in the work of the Lord Jesus. Help us to be prophetic witnesses of a kingdom that's coming. Help us to live as ambassadors of a kingdom that I believe is soon on its arrival as King Jesus brings heaven to be reconciled to earth. Give us grace, I pray, God, to be champions in this hour, to win at life by choosing to follow the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.